This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. My guest today is my friend, Simon Gervais. Simon is an author of the Mike Walton series, the Pierce Hunt series, and now the Clayton White series, which is right here, comes out November 1st, The Last Protector. Simon's such a great guy. I was so fired up to have him on my podcast. He's a former officer in the Canadian military. Then he went to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, where he did drug operations. Then he went to their version of HRT, the Hostage Rescue Team. He did their air marshal program, their close personal protection, executive protection, secret service type of a program, and then went to a very secretive unit that was focused on counterintelligence and surveillance. And he brings all that knowledge, all that experience, all that wisdom to the pages of his novels. Such a great guy, super fired up to be able to talk to him. And now, without further ado, Simon Gervais. Let's just jump right in. Absolutely. Because, uh, yeah, man, Simon, I'm so excited to talk to you because uh, without a podcast, we probably would just be running around just texting each other, you know, every now and again and and all that sort of thing. But that's my favorite part of doing this is being able to sit down and just turn all the other things that beep off for a little bit and just have a conversation and catch up. So selfishly, that's uh, that's my favorite part about doing a, a podcast is getting to just hang out with friends for a little bit. I hear you 100%, man. I wish we could do that in person around a cold drink, but you know, the last year and a half has been tough for a lot of us. We have to readjust our schedule in ways we never imagined we would have to. Um, but this these type of podcasts, man, I'm, I'm fired up too. Uh, it's gonna be awesome to finally catch up I know. I know you had a lot going on. I mean, and before we get to this, the new book, Last Protector, right here, which is right behind me also. Uh, I always get books from my friends. Even if I get them sent to me, I always get, I always got to support the the cause. Uh, so before we get to that, I think you have some, you have an announcement to make, don't you? Is a, that you're allowed to, to talk about on this podcast? I thought about waiting till the end to ask you about it, but I figure maybe we'll lead with it and then circle back and figure out how we got to that that point. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, I'm super happy to be able to tell you, you're the first person I'm actually allowed to say it uh, publicly. Just got the thumbs up from uh, Tom Colgan at the Penguin Random House yesterday night because uh, I knew I was coming to your podcast and I sent him an email, my agent sent him an email say, can we say something about it? Because this, this is quite a big news. And he said, oh, let me check with publicity and marketing and finally got the thumbs up. So here we go. Um, in March or April of this year, the estate of uh, Robert Ludlum reached out to me. Seems that they were a fan of my Pearson series. It was, they were a fan of my work. And um, they asked me to write a new series for them. It's a, to create a new series in the Robert Ludlum's universe about Blackbriar. I don't know if that name rings a bell. Yeah, yeah, it does, and I forget from which uh, from which novel. I, I grabbed a couple of them right before coming in here because now you're you're heir to this legacy, the essentially the Born Universe legacy, and all the other things that uh, Robert Ludlum has has done, which wasn't just the you know the oh, Born no, no, series. Man. Of course, he was my favorite author, and uh, actually Brian Freeman is going to write the keep writing the Jason Bourne uh, novels, and Joshua Hood, who you know, is writing the Threadstone. So I'm going to write yep. the third. Uh, series and that same universe, but that it's going to stand on its own, even though there's going to be 
of course, my main characters will know about Jason Bourne, uh, will know about Josh characters, but it's going to be, it's going to, people won't need to read the other series to get into this one. And I'm so excited. I'm fired up. It's a, it's a dream come true for me, really, to be able to step into the shoes of such a giant in the thriller world. Yeah, I mean, legendary. I brought, I grabbed a couple other ones out there as well. You know, I got the, I got, I got them, I got them most all of them, I think, and I've read them most all of them over the years. Really cool. um, but uh, I mean, like just a, a legend. Here's the, another great one right there. Yes, Chance on manuscript. Um, just awesome. But uh, yeah, it's just a legend. I'm so so fired up for you. I mean, to be able to continue a legacy of such a legend yes. that all of us read growing up and that uh, has such a tradition of, of excellence and this incredible foundation of characters in which to build. I mean, just just incredible. But uh, remind me about uh, Blackbriar. Where, where did I, where have I heard this? Uh, Blackbriar is part of, you've probably seen it in the Jason Bourne novels, his first three original uh and also in the movies, in the movies Jason Bourne with Matt Damon, they talk about Blackbriar. Blackbriar was initially created to chase Jason Bourne. They were the unit that was built and created to go after this guy. Um, and when we see in the movie that they actually fail, they kind of reinvented themselves after that. And that's where I'm jumping in. All the other guys have been arrested or they're dead. They're, you know, they're somewhere else. Now I'm creating uh, an agency uh, that's going to be able to operate on its own. Um, it's going to be the only civilian covert organization in the United States, that, as I said, that's civilian-led, that's completely focused on counterintelligence. So when you look at Josh Book, um, that's really Treadstone. Treadstone are like, the initial Jason, where there are a bunch of assassins, right? They're, they're guys that get into other countries and they, they kill people, they blow stuff up. Um, when my characters is going to be more into the investigation, onto the what's the world of counterintelligence? What's the world of surveillance, counter surveillance? Of course, it's going to be a Simon Gervais book as well. So it's going to be action packed, it's going to be fast paced, it's going to be a real thriller, but it's going to be, uh, it's going to be different from the two other series going on right now. Oh, that is so, so awesome. And you have a background there that I want to get to that's going to inform those pages. And I don't think there's anybody else who could really do that counterintelligence piece quite as well as you're going to do it in this, uh, in this new series. But um, let's go back. Let's go back a bit before we get to this novel and talk a little bit uh, more about Blackbriar and all that. Uh, how did this all start for you? Were you, were you always destined to, to join the military, the Canadian military from an early age? Or did that come at some point after college or during college, or how did that how did that journey start for you? I think I I started probably when I was in the in the air cadet when I was really young, a young teenager. I always found my place in places that were I had rules to follow. I like to know what the bounds are, and uh, I think when I joined the cadet when I was thirteen years old, I kind of enjoyed it, and then it morphed into. It was the air cadet. So at some point I watched Top Gun, of course, and I won of course. a fighter pilot. <laughs> um, and, and the air cadets, did you learn how to fly in the air cadets or is it more yes, of like an yes. appreciation? Yes, I thing? did. It's a special course. It's a six-week course where you learn to fly a Cessna 162, 172. Uh, nice. You know, you do a solo. Um, it, it's a lot of fun, but then you, you, you have to maintain your license by yourself. Uh, and okay. it's not something that I've ever done after. Um, but this is something at some point in my life I'd like to do again. I'd like to do like 
our friend David Morel took a flying lesson. Now I have mm-hmm. my instrument and everything. This is something down the road that I'd like to do, but it didn't work out for me uh, because I had a problem with my eyes. Uh, not something something that was able to correct with a laser surgery, but not enough for the Canadian forces to say, all right, you can join a pilot program. But they offered, say, you like planes, right? Yeah, absolutely. Would you like to jump out of them? So, oh, wow, that's, <laughs> that sounds amazing. Well, why don't you sign the dotted line right there? What is the, it's infantry. Oh, okay, well, that sounds <laughs> Have we got a deal for you? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I joined the army in 1997 uh, as an infantry officer. And uh, I- Is that after college? You go. You went to college first? I or? went to what we call in Canada, it's called CGIP. So it's after high school, you do two years of uh, specialist type of degree. It's not university, it's something kind of in between the last two years. Okay. So I did something in history and economics, but nothing serious, no. I was always, I think, wanted to go in the military. And as long as I had that post-secondary education, I could, I could, I could do that. Um, so I was really happy uh, when I, I joined, you know, the, the infantry. I, even though I wasn't aware exactly what it was at the beginning, <laughs> you learn very, very quickly what it is. So in Canada, uh, it's divided. The, the, the officer course is one year long. So the first is divided okay. in four parts. The first one is is the entry phase. It's like where all the combat arms, so and the and the and the ground army, so artillery, uh, armor, and infantry, we all join together for the first three months, and you learn the basic. You learn the basic about what is military life. You learn how to shoot. You learn how to use a compass. Really, really basic. And mm-hmm. then after that, the real work begins for the nine for the other nine months after that. Um, it's like you're divided. The armor go to their place, artillery go to their players, and the infantry, mm-hmm. we go to Gagetown, which is the infantry school uh, in New Brunswick on the eastern part of Canada. Okay. And I joined at the wrong moment, I think, because it was <laughs> <in> winter. <laughs> yeah, so, I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. It was so damn cold. Uh, <laughs> first, so the, the phase two is a small unit tactic. So this is mm-hmm. when you learn rec- how to lead a patrol, how to uh, do uh, defensive position, you know, all the basic right. reconnaissance, these, these type of things. But it's really about soldiering. So it's not that difficult. Where it really kicks in, it's at the phase three. This is the equivalent. Uh, my friend that did the ranger course, that got the ranger tab, they say it's, it's about the same thing physically yeah. and mentally. For three months, you're in the wood, you're in the forest. For me, it was under like five feet of snow. And then you learn again what you did in phase two, but it's at the platoon level. Uh, at the platoon level. So you, you learn how to bring uh, an infantry platoon, not a special forces one, not a paratrooper one, just a regular infantry out to patrol, out to attack, out to do withdrawals. So it's a, it's a treatment that's extremely intense. Uh, even though you do have some week, uh, weekends off once in a while, I'd say that if you sleep seven to eight hours a week, it's really good. Wow. So everybody loses yeah. 15, 20 pounds. And you sweat all the time, even though you're in winter. But the, the challenge during the winter phase is that if you, if you don't equip yourself properly, you die. Um, and we had people from Ukraine that was attached to us because uh, they were doing their training with the Canadian forces. And some of them lost uh, limbs uh, because well, they didn't ca- take care of them carefully. 
well, it's not warm in Ukraine. I've been to, I've been to Odessa. I've been to Ukraine. Like it's not, I was there in December, maybe November. Anyway, I remember it being very cold in Odessa. That's the thing. It, it, it was very surprising, but I think there was, they had a lot of pressure uh, not to fail, to be successful yeah. at it. So they cut corners and they didn't take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. Like, you know how sometime in the field, you really need to take care of yourself, you need to take care of your feet, you need to take care of your weapon. And sometimes you forget when you're tired, you don't know what's going on and you don't feel your foot anymore. You don't want to call the medic because you're ashamed. You know, you've done something oh, wrong geez. and then you're at the point of no return. Oh. And just to finish this off, the last phase is mechanized infantry. So you learn how to, the lav were just being introduced in the Canadian forces at the time. Uh-huh. You learn how to bring M113 and lav, how to do attack defense position as a mechanized infantry platoon. No kidding. And what, what, uh, what rifles were you guys learning from your version of, uh, I guess, the introductory phase all the way through? You guys have M4s that you're, you're carrying up there? What no, were you but it's your version of the M16. It's called the C7. Um, C7, so okay. I'm sure you're familiar with the C8. So the I don't C- know that one. C7 is just a little bit bigger than the C8. Uh, okay. It's really, it's equivalent really to the, uh, to the M16. And we have a, the range is about 300 meters. Uh, is it made in Canada? Um, no, it's a good, I think it, I'm not sure where it's made. I'm going to look this up afterward. I'm going to check yeah. this out. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Maybe I know it by another name. I'm thinking I might know it by another, another name, but anyway, I'm going to look that up afterward. Yeah. But that was your, that, is it what you guys still use today or was that just in 97? Yes, it is. But I have to admit that I left the Canadian forces right before September 11. Um, so I'm sure they changed a whole lot of things since I left. Yeah. Um, hopefully there's been some evolution since then, <laughs> at least in optics and lasers and all the rest of that stuff. Exactly. I mean, we didn't even have NVG to do night patrolling. We were doing a race yeah. of five, six click in the dark, and we didn't even know where we were going. Just your little compass. Then you bring a tarp over your head with a little red pen. Uh, <laughs> I remember. <laughs> yeah. That's wild. That's why. So before September 11th, did you guys do any, uh, uh, deployments for uh, for presence anywhere or do any training exercises with other countries around the world or come to the United States and do some cross training or what did you do during your time after you graduated? Yeah, we did some cross training with some units in the United States, um, but I didn't have the time to join my unit long enough. My five years was about to expire and I wanted to do something else. Um, it was a, you know, the military for me was a very good stepping stone into what would become mm-hmm. my career after. Um, Yes, we did. I went to Fort Drum to train with some Americans. Um, but at some point, I kind of felt that it wasn't for me. I wanted to do something different because you have to understand that before 2001, there wasn't much going on. There were, we were yeah. keeping mission, uh, peacekeeping mission, sorry. Um, and I participated in one of those when we have refugees coming in in Canada and we have to set up tents and camps for them, but nothing really exciting. And we were like, there's nothing going on. So in my class of about 20, 25 that finished, um, I'd say about half of us left after our initial contract yeah. because there was just nothing going on. And you know, when you're right. young, you're in your early 20s, you want to do something. You want to go have an adventure. And I didn't feel it was bringing it to me. Oh boy, my friend that stayed though, their life changed completely yeah. after that. Oh yeah. No, we thought the same thing, you know, showing up at our first SEAL teams in 1997. Yeah. Um, we all thought we were going to get the the pagers and get the secret 
text in the middle of the night and go off and do the op, you know, and come home in time for beers and all that. That that was not how it was as a uh, as a new guy in 97, 98. So uh, in 2001, of course, then everything changed for uh, for everyone. And we finally got to do what we came in to do. Yeah. Um, but for you, so you get out in 2001 and you uh, join or get recruited. How do you find out about the Royal Canadian Mounted Police? Because that's where you go next. Exactly. Right? This is something I've been looking at during the last six months of my time in the military. Say, where, where do I want to go? And I have to say that at the time I was still in military when I was with my, who's my, now my wife, she was a military dentist. So she was a captain. I was a lieutenant. So she was one, one uh, rank higher than I was. Um, and we met and uh, she was on a temporary duty for her engaged town. And she was going back to Ottawa. And I said, what can I do in Ottawa that, you know, is going to bring me closer to you if I want to, you know, at some point start a family. It's funny because I, we only met for two weeks while we were engaged town and I already knew she was going to be, you know, the woman of my life. Um, <clears throat> so I look into the RCMP because policing was something I was interested to. So uh, I give my paper to the army, moved with her in Ottawa and I applied to the university of Ottawa to continue uh, the degree in economics and applied to the RCMP. And at the time the RCMP wasn't hiring. There were about 10 to 12,000 applicants a year and they were selecting less than 500. Um, okay. so I said, you know what, I'm going to finish my degree. I'm going to try again in a few years. And at the same time, my wife left the army as well and applied to become an endodontist, which is another three year specialist degree at the university of Toronto. So I said, you know, we will apply and see what it is. And we both got in on our first try. So we were very fortunate. And, um, the RCMP for your listeners that might not know exactly what it is. We're the yeah, because we we picture the uniforms um, on the horse, you know, the, the beautiful backdrop of the mountains, and you know, so what? Yeah, what is the equivalent, the U.S. equivalent of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police? I would say it's a mix of your FBI, Secret hmm. Service, DEA, and ATF all combined in one big organization. We're the only civilian-led force in Canada that have law enforcement power across across the country. So in some province, we do police work, we do city police, you know, we get contracted by the city to, the, to do the police. And then in each provinces, then we do provincial police work. And at the federal level, we do all the anti-terrorism stuff. We do the drug investigation, we do uh, the air marshal, and we do uh, protective services for our prime ministers and all the VIPs that come into Canada. And that's what you found yourself doing for the next essentially 13 years, I think, before you transition to the next chapter of life. But what was that training like? So you get accepted and then what happens? Do you go to some sort of a, uh, a federal law enforcement training academy or what is, the, what is that academy like for, for you guys? So it's called Depot and Depot is in Saskatchewan. It's in the middle of Canada on the prairie. There's nothing around it. Oh, I've been to Saskatchewan. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> yeah. Wild geese. <laughs> exactly. So you're, you're stuck there. It's six months. It's a, uh, it's challenging, but not in the way the military is. Uh, yes, there's physical fitness involved, but it's really like a six month long university course into how to deal with people and about law enforcement. So it's not, um, the attrition rate is very, very low. You start 30, you probably finish 28. And the only two that leaves is because they failed the law exam or they, they kind of quit on their own, really. There's no, okay. it's, it's quite, it's not difficult. It's not challenging. The real challenges come when you actually 
go on the street for the first time with a coach. Because following your graduation, you're, you're hired as a full-fledged police officer, and then you're attached to someone for six months. And those six did you get to choose like which, uh, did you get to do a, a wish list or anything like that? Or how do you, how do you know where you're going to go? Good question. So yes, there's a wish list, but what <laughs> happened is that- Needs of the Navy, we call it in the military the in uh, the United States. The RCMP is better than your wish list. Uh, so for me, <laughs> I was very fortunate in a way because September 11 happened when I was right in depot. So the whole organization changed. And I was supposed, my posting was supposed to be St. Anthony's Newfoundland, where mm. you see the iceberg, where you actually yeah. see the mountains and the, you know, the, the yeah. you described earlier on. But because of September 11, and we realized that uh, we needed to secure our border uh, with the United States, just because there were some people entering Canada, traveling the United States, and we needed to, to, uh, to have the border a little bit stronger than what it was. So I was sent mm. to border patrol to, to patrol the border between the province of Quebec, Ontario, and the state of New York, because there's an Indian reserve there that were used to smuggle weapons uh, and people. So wow. they needed to, a unit was created within the RCMP to, to check on those. And because of my background in reconnaissance, because this is what I did after uh, in the army, um, I was selected to go there. So I did my first six months uh, uh, doing border patrol with the RCMP and working in close collaboration with my colleague at the United States Border Patrol at the time, it was called like this. Um, so that's what I did for the first six months with the RCMP. Oh, interesting. Somebody tried to send me some uh, some whiskey from Canada, some homemade whiskey. Uh, it didn't make it. It didn't make it. So you guys are on the ball up there. It did, yeah, it didn't make it across. It got got returned to him. He didn't get locked up or anything, but uh, he wanted to send me a family recipe down, and it uh, yeah, it didn't make it. Didn't make it. You guys are you guys are on the ball. Well, we're we're, we're trying to because we know we have a role to play, um, and uh, you know a lot of people have complained that the borders were porous in between our countries, mm. and sometimes they are. But you know we're the greatest allies in history, uh, so we trust ourselves. But the border is so big; it's so unprotected in a way that at some point when there's a specific threat, you need to address it. So, yeah. And it's, uh, I mean, it, there's some natural barriers there, I guess, just environmentally, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's such a cool thing to have a border like that, uh, in countries that are, that are so, so connected on, on so many different, different levels. But, uh, so at some point out there, you're in this place, it's your first assignment, it's your six months. And eventually you make your way to an anti-terrorism unit. Um, what happens in between there, for between that first assignment and before, I think in 2004, you're going to that anti-terrorism unit, but what happens in between there? Are you doing some investigations and getting uh, building a foundation uh, in investigations into what drugs or what are, you, what are you focused on before you join that anti-terrorist unit? Exactly. So after six months in Valleyfield, my wife was in uh, Toronto. Uh, she was accepted in her specialty for three years, and I, I asked for a transfer. And lucky for me, there was the international drug section that was looking for a guy. Uh, so I put it in and uh, I, was, I was accepted, which usually in the RCMP, you need to serve at least two to five years before your first transfer somewhere else, especially if it's another province. But I guess I was lucky I was in the right place at the right time. I had a good reputation and they wanted me. Um, so I did that for the from 2000 to maybe 2004, I was working with ICE and the DEA on international drug cases. 
so that was that was fantastic, and I've learned so much. Um, I think policing, especially in investigation, a little bit like write, the craft of writing, you never stop learning. There's always new yeah. laws coming. There's always something new. And I was very fortunate to to work with people that were that had been there for ten to twelve years. So I've learned the ropes. I, I really became efficient at what I, what I did, and I really really enjoyed it. And at the same time, I, I did, I applied to become an Earth member, which is the emergency response team, which is the equivalent of your FBI HRT. Um, so I did that for the last six months before going to the counterterrorism unit. So I did, there was a selection that lasted seven days. That was, you know how selection are. It's like, you don't know if you're doing well or not, but at the end I pass. And the way it works in the RCMP to join a a hurt team, especially the one I was going to in Toronto, you need to be voted in. Um, so at the end of selection, you're all tired off, you're messed, your uniform is a mess, and you're they ask you a question and the guys they vote you up or they vote you down. And nice. uh, it's it's funny because usually the RCMP is like a military, it's a pyramidal organization. If you're higher in rank, you lead. But in the hurt team in Toronto, he voted the team leader as well. So you could be a sergeant working for a constable. It was really, really different from what I used to, uh, but it worked for that team. It worked perfectly. So I did that with them for, uh, I, I was a striker with them for six, uh, six months and it was fantastic. I loved and I learned how to clear buildings in an other way that military and police, we don't clear buildings the same way. Some tactics are similar, but you know you have to have control of your of your trigger much more than than if you were doing an entry in the military. Interesting. So you so before you did that uh, HRT training selection uh, and went into that, when you're focused on the the drug stuff, are you doing any undercover work? Um, what kind of drugs are you focused on? Are they coming from uh, from Europe? Are they coming from uh, Central South America, Mexico, up through the United States? Or what are you? What is the uh, I guess the issue that you're focused on for the most part back then? Anyway, from 2002 to 2004 time frame, what was uh, the focus of your your drug investigations back then? I think it's pretty much the same that we have right now because I was in Toronto, so most of the drugs were coming through the uh, airport in Toronto, and the okay. flights. A lot of them were going from Trinidad Tobago coming from Mexico, coming from Jamaica. And uh, mostly I would say was cocaine. And to answer your question, I wasn't doing undercover work there. If I was, it was only for surveillance and for a one day period, nothing um, like months uh, at the time. This was another unit that was a covered unit that I had nothing to do with this. Uh, for me, it was really working the, 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 the drug case, the drug that were coming in, trying to figure out where they were coming from and where they were going in Canada, what was the distribution system mm -hmm. um, and trying to seize it as much as possible. Sometime we were lucky and we got kilos at the time. I remember doing a 35 kilo bus, which was the biggest one I, I, I was part of. Uh, but sometime it was, it was a little bit more delicate because I don't know if you learn about people that are carrying drugs on them that are swallowing pellets of cocaine for very little money um, they, they crossed the border in a plane. They got arrested in, uh, by our border agent. They, 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 they're being asked questions. You see that they're sweating. So they call us in and they say, you know what, Simon, I think we, these people are, have swallowed drugs. And so we have to bring them to a special place called the Lube. And they have to do their, their stuff. And we, 
with oh. special glove. You try to figure, oh. you rinse it off and you test it and there it goes. So it seems like a, a new guy uh, thing. Hey, new guy, where are you? <laughs> You're up. It's yeah, your I turn. Not the it's... more popular files. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And sometimes every now and again, one of those things burst, right? And someone dies. Is that how it happens? Yeah. Yeah. We end up at the hospital quite a lot. And one of the things I have to share with you is very sad is that at some point we, we got an eight years old with it. Her mom oh. forced her to do that. Oh. And uh, we were about to let them go, but we had something. We felt that there was something wrong. And at some point, the little girl said, Mom, should we tell them about what I swallowed? Wow. Oh, my God. This was... Uh, so when these type of situations happen, you forget about policing. What Your first priority is the, is the life of the kids. So, of course, you, you call 911, you, you go to the hospital as fast as possible, and, and you take care of that because this is a, a major surgery that the doctors need to do to remove those pellets before, uh, before they burst in your stomach. And it's, it's an automatic overdose if this happens. Yeah. Oh, man. So at this point, I mean, you have... Uh, your military background, uh, you've gone through Royal Canadian Mount of Police training, you've done the, the drug stuff, and then you get selected for uh, this HRT um, type of a, a unit. And how long are you with them? Are you uh, going around with them? Is this where you start going overseas or what, what's oh, going no, no, on no. during this it's time? It's very a unit that was working in Ontario and the Grand Toronto area. So I think the further we have gone with them was in Kingston, like a two, three hour drive. Uh, yeah. So no, it wasn't, um, it wasn't overseas at all. When I started traveling overseas was, I joined a program, like, do you know what the air marshals are in, yeah. uh, in the United States? Right. So we had a very covert program, very similar to that in Canada. And this is what I joined in 2004. Nice. Um, there was, it was a brand new unit. Like we were like, buying the computers, buying the cars type of thing for that unit at a covert location in Ottawa. And I applied for it. And for the first time, I wouldn't say the first time because ERT was quite challenging, but the selection and the course to become an operator uh, with that counterterrorism unit was the most challenging course I've ever done in my life. The attrition rate for, for this one was about 75%. You start oh, wow. about 30 guys and you finish seven, eight, or nine if you're lucky. Um, because every and why why is that? Um, is it because uh, our air marshal program? I know that the uh, the course of fire for selection that they have, and it might have changed since I shot it. It's been ten years, maybe a little bit longer since I shot that course of fire, but it's challenging. Like I remember it being legit. Yeah. Uh, and it, is is that one of the things that you guys do, do as part of that program as well? Yes, it is. It's very very similar. You know, you probably from ulster position, you, you draw, you need to fire within 1.25 second. Your first shot has to be on target. You cannot miss, there's, I think it's on a 150 point and you can't not lose more than five points. If not, you're disqualified. If you're disqualified twice, you're home. But the shooting, you shoot so much that you get better at this. I would say no more than out of everybody that quits, about 25% do it because of the, of the challenge of the course of fire. Most of the other, they, they, they fail on the scenarios because the scenarios are challenging. Uh, you learn how to, uh, what to do when there's a bomb in a aircraft. Where do you place it? How do you deal with it? If it's a mercury switch, if it's a dead man switch, how do you need to take the terrorists down in the most effective manner quickly to save the life of the passengers? And then there's different scenarios like what do you do when you can't save everybody and now the aircraft has been taken and is being 
is being fly as a weapon. You've lost the fight inside the airplane. What do you do to take the control wow. of the cockpit now? So those are all scenarios that uh, you need to be quick thinking. Uh, the DS are always there watching and they don't give you any chances whatsoever. And what's very, very difficult about that is you never know if you do things. They teach you what to do, um, but at the end, you don't know if you pass or if you fail. You just keep going, keep going. You don't know where you stand. Uh, and a lot of people just, they, they, they just can't take it. So, uh, so they- Wow, I think they might've got that. Like SAS is kind of, it was like that. Uh, our, our Delta selection I've heard is similar to that. We just don't, you don't know. Um, what pistols are you guys using? Uh, Nine millimeter Smith and Wesson pistol, but- huh. There's a variation to it that I can't talk about, but there's a variation cool. to it that make it uh, more efficient. And how, how long did you do that, that program? So you graduate that, that program, and then are you uh, with this air marshal unit for a certain amount of time, and that's your, your focus for the next few years? Yeah, it's my focus until 2008. And it was, I think, the best job I had with the RCMP. Uh, we train with the Israelis. We train with the French GGN, which I'm the group yeah, yeah. who they are. That's great. So we Amazing. all work together to improve our tactics, uh, shooting, uh, tacticals. Uh, because, of course, uh, in my unit, there was, of course, the, the flying. There was time being spent inside the plane. But there's always stuff you need to do at the airport. There's always investigation and surveillance that you need to do on, on people that are of interest to law enforcement. Um, so that was super challenging. It was a lot of fun. So I did that for, for eight years, but eight years. Wow. And you, you have to qualify, requalify every four years for four years. I said that to, until 2008, I did that for four years. And okay. yes, you need to requalify every six months, every six months, because the bad guys progress too. They don't sit on their tongue doing nothing. They learn about the tactics. They try to infiltrate our units and try to see what, how we will react if they do this, if they do that. So we need to improve our tactics too. And that's why training with our overseas partner is so important because the French want to tell us something that's, oh my God, you know what? We never had that type of scenario happen in real life. Thank you for sharing this. We will improve our tactics yeah. to, to, uh, to match that type of offense. Um, so it was really, really fun. But at the same time, being deployed for four years straight overseas, spending time in the Middle East and Europe and the United States, it becomes taxing on a family. Mm -hmm. um, I have two, I had two kids, both were born, one in 2005, the other in 2007. My wife had a business that was booming at the time. And here I was like overseas for two weeks in a row, back for a week, boom, gone again. It was, it was very difficult. Yeah, you're just having fun out there. You're just playing. You get to go. Yeah. <laughs> and the bunch of guys and girls I was with was there's some of them are still my best friends right now. I mean, awesome. you, you become very, very tight in that type of unit, like I'm sure you know. Um, and uh, yeah, it was it was hard to leave, but at the same time, uh, my wife and I was we always have a very honest conversation about saying, you know what, I need help at home. Uh, I understand what you do is important, but I think you did your part. Is there any other, is there something else in the RCMP that you could do that's going to give us the satisfaction of what you're doing or what you're accomplishing right now? And I said, of course. That's the beauty about the RCMP compared to other police forces. There are so many options in front of you uh, that that you can go, that you can choose. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's, that's a, that's a fact. But you don't go to someplace that is going to give you that much more time at home, it doesn't seem. I mean, you go into a closed protection unit. Is this where that starts? The executive protection, closed protection? It is. More of the secret service type elements? Yeah. yeah. And is, there another, is there another training program then for that? Yes, there is. Um, very similar to what the secret service would do uh, when they, they get uh, posted to a protective detail for the president, mm. the vice president. So we do that. It's I believe it's a six-week course. Um Super interesting, a little bit of tactics, a lot of theory, a lot of the best part is the, is the driving. The yeah. oh, so much fun. The driving, the J turn, the pit maneuver, the counter pit the maneuver, the counter counter pit maneuver. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a lot of fun, you know, and you do that. So much fun. I talk to people about that being my favorite time in the military. My favorite courses were the driving courses because they are so much fun. And uh, I was, for the, the Amazon series for the terminal list, there's a, a part that has some driving in it. And I was trying to explain to them the pit maneuver. I'm sending them videos and I'm like, you can't do this. You got to do it like this. Otherwise it looks too Hollywood. And, uh, but it's so much fun to go to those courses. And, uh, and is that a separate facility for you guys? Kind of like, I think our secret service guys, I forget if they go to the, um, to their, in Georgia, to the federal, I forget where they do it exactly, but, um, but you guys go to another location to do that, that training that then qualifies you to do this close, be part of this close protection unit? Yeah. Luckily for me, it was done in Ottawa. Everybody nice. in Canada <laughs> comes to Ottawa to do that course because we have a special tracks for that unit at the back. Um, so even if there's accident, cause there's always accident, uh, you, you know, it's very safe to do so. Um, so I did that. And after that, you, you go to your unit and right on top, you get, get assigned to the prime minister, to his family. Um, my first, my first posting, I would say my first duty was to the U S ambassador to Canada and the Israeli ambassador to Canada. They were my two main details for the first few months. And that was really cool. It was interesting. And you learn so much uh, with these people. And you, you learn how to keep your mouth shut, shut as well. Because you're in the vehicle with some of the most important or influential, politically at least, uh, people in the country. And you can't talk about what you're in the vehicle or anything. Um, so they, it, it's, it's a trust in between. And I think they understand that. But for me, the ambassador I've worked with were always very understanding. And they treat us with respect as well. That is awesome. Do you, uh, do you sign something where you go specifically to that unit that's saying, Hey, I know I'm going to be privy to these different, uh, conversations in the vehicle or in different rooms. And I promise never to talk about it and all that sort of thing. Do you have to do you sign a non-disclosure for that? That's separate Not from what you do for this one, but you do when you join the RCMP, because when you join, when you become RCMP officer, you get a top secret security clearance. So it's automatically that whatever you learn, whatever the tactics, whatever you you know, you became privy to, you cannot discuss it. And same thing with, uh, like we have a part of the state department that, uh, that does that for foreign dignitaries that come to the United States. And, uh, so you're handling those as well, right? If Queen Elizabeth comes over or Barack Obama comes up or something like that, you're, you're handling that security as well. Exactly. Like I was a uh, part of the group protecting president Obama when he came to Canada, I was in charge of the visit of uh, Queen Elizabeth II when she visited Canada, and I did the Chinese president as well. These were all big, big operations with motorcades, a lot of uh, interagency collaboration, because even though we're in charge, we still need to work with our provincial and municipal partners to, to make it an effective team, because we need their help to control the traffic. And, you know, there's, it's a big, when these visits come, it's huge. 
Um, it's a lot of work. At the same time, it's very interesting. But I would say that my, my favorite detail I've ever worked with was Gen General James Mattis. Um, this guy was unbelievable. I've learned so much in my few days with him. Uh, we exchange a lot, and I exchange with his protective detail as well. And the respect that this man commended, I've never seen that in any politicians. Never. Okay. He, was, he was the real then. I was very, very impressed. Actually, it was almost the first time in my career I was starstruck when I saw someone. I said, oh, my God, he's a combat general. I know what he did in Fallujah. I know what his men did for him. I know what he did for his men. And uh, I'll give you an example. The first thing that happened usually when a president or a VIP comes, they walk out of the airplane, they jump into the armored limo, and we leave. General Mattis, he doesn't work like this. Like, he comes out, knock on the window, and say, guys, what are you doing? Well, sir, we're waiting for you. We're ready to depart. Say, no, no, no. We need to help with the luggage. Follow me. So what do you do? Like the tap <laughs> in your vehicle, but General James Mattis tell you, come out of the vehicle and help out with the guys. So we're, we're in a chain with his guys, and he's right standing right next to us. Duffel bags are being pitched <laughs> the panel bag. Fantastic. Oh, like, oh my God, this is the first impression. Say, like, okay, this guy, he takes his men serious. He'll do whatever he needs for, for them. So for me, as a bodyguard, I'm going to do everything I can do for him as well. You know, so uh, I was so impressed with him, like 100%. That is awesome. And uh, while you're doing this assignment, are you requalifying also on, on pistol and rifle and those sorts of things? Uh, maybe a little differently than as a, the air marshal side of the house, but is it a similar type of a uh, requal? Uh, different, different side. Yeah, requal every six months, but it's all about bodyguarding mm -hmm. scenarios. Uh, we work with Sims, you know. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so we do this every six months. As usual, to adapt our, our to adapt our tactics uh, because we're learning a lot from our guys that are doing that type of job in Afghanistan and Iraq. So they're coming back and say, "Okay, an ambush scenario. What you need to do? You don't stay on the X anymore. You get out. You, you know, you make yourself more difficult the target." So, of course, we need to go through that type of training every six months as well. And is this your last assignment before you decide to, to get out or do you have one more after this? Or what's your, what's your path? My last this? two years was the most secretive unit I, I worked with. I didn't even know it existed before I joined. So that was very funny. It was a counter surveillance unit. Um, so this is, this is the, probably the only spy stuff really that's in the RCMP because the real espionage, the real spy thing is done by another agency. Um, and this is all about observing what's going on around the people that are protected, around the ambassador, around influential people in Canada, who's trying to infiltrate their, side, their, their circle. A lot of industrial espionage, uh, these type of things, secrets that you need to keep safe, but you know there's entry coming out. Uh -huh. So, and our job is to make sure that we know who's coming after us. Wow. So that's going to come in handy with uh, Blackbriar, the, the, the Ludlum series. You'll be able to incorporate a lot uh, from that. That's going to be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. This is, this is a two years that it's going to be as much as The Last Protector is the first book I wrote in which I'm really using my bodyguarding experience. Uh, Blackbriar is going to be the first series I'm going to use my skills as a surveillance and counter-surveillance operator. 
That's amazing. So is that your, if you had to choose a, I hate using the word favorite, but I guess the most impactful or uh, the, I guess the job you enjoyed or the toughest challenge, what, what was, uh, when you look back on that, that time in, in, in service to Canada, what, uh, what was your, the, the, was it those last two years that stand out to you um, because it was so secretive or is it the HRT stuff or, I mean, it sounds like an amazing run. Like that's a solid run. There's not too many staff jobs in there where you're just behind a desk checking some boxes and answering some phones. I mean, you're doing some really cool and varied type of assignments over your, over that, that time period. That, that's incredible. Is there one that stands out to you as being that you look back on the most fondly, I guess? I think they all stand out. I have to be honest yeah. because I, I know how blessed I am to have had those jobs. Uh, a lot of people, they're stuck in a position for 10, 12 years and they're miserable. I mean, the RCMP is a great organization, but there's a lot of miserable Miserable pulls things as well. Sure. And bureaucracy, were, just like any big bureaucracy. Yeah. Exactly. I was at the right place at the right time and I was the right guy for the job. So uh, I have no regrets whatsoever. But at some point, I had to leave because my last two years were with that covert unit and I was starting to write. And I knew I needed to create a website. I needed to, my whole life, the, the last, I would say two years with counter surveillance, all my time with the air marshal and counterterrorism unit was all secretive. I couldn't talk about it even to some of my closest friends. And then when you become an author, just like you, you need to switch that around and be outgoing when your defense mechanism is a, I'm gonna mind my own business. I don't wanna talk about what I do, but now I have to talk about what I do mm -hmm. because when I first started writing my series, there were not a lot of guys like us, ex-guys that did interesting job. There were not a lot of Navy SEAL. There were not a lot uh, of all these type of former military. So it was kind of not the first, but unique in a way that mm -hmm. it was, oh my God, Simon's a friend. And my agent, when he read my first book, he said, Simon, you're not the best writer, but I can sell you. So I was like, oh, <laughs> okay. Thanks, Derek. <laughs> I'm going to sign you. We'll we'll make you a good writer, but I can sell you because you have something that people will be interested to write. And I think this is what we say in French, la marque de commerce, is that action and very intense action scenes. Um, because, like many guys now, I've been there, I've done that. I know what it is to be stuck in a fight and how you feel uh, when you're stuck in it. Um, well, where did that come? Where did the uh, the writing bug start? Did you start thinking about that during your last couple of years, or you had had you been thinking about it for a while and just came to the decision that, hey, it's time to move on. It's time to start this next chapter in life, and I'm going to write. Like, when? How did that come about? It's a it's a funny story because, like like you were, because I've listened to some of your podcasts as well, and I know that you're voracious readers, and your mom was a librarian before. Yeah. Um, uh, my mom was a medical secretary and we used to go to all our true beach and Maine for our vacation. And we always brought a pile of books. She stopped by the library and she, 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 um, she gave me, um, she gave me uh, books to read while we were traveling. So I became very voracious reader and I never stopped. And when I was with the air marshal, there was a lot of reading uh, that I was doing as well. And at some point I was reading some, some people that were big name authors and I, I kind of felt that the action scenes weren't as good as they could be. I mean, the prose was phenomenal, not something I'll ever be able to achieve, but there was something missing for me. 
Uh, and I said, why don't I start writing a book? I mean, it's easy. You write a book and then it's on the shelf of, uh, you know, <laughs> that's, that, right. that's what I easy. thought. I was so, so, so naive. Actually, I'm not sure if I would have really started doing this if I known how, how difficult it was going to be. But it took me seven years to write uh, the first book, uh, which was called The Tin Black Line. It was published in uh, 2015. And once again, I got lucky. Oh my God, I've been saying lucky a lot on this podcast. That's really how I- <laughs> And that's the Mike Walton series, right? It's the first that starts you on that series? Exactly. That's the Mike Walton series. And um, it did well. It's, it sold like 35,000 copies in six months from a small publisher. So it was like, wow, okay, I, I, can, I can do that. Um, so I decided to write the whole series um, with, with this. And the funny thing is that I didn't know I needed an agent when I started doing I it. I didn't either. Yeah. I had no idea. I feel so glad that I didn't know also, because I might still be looking for one. That is, that's the truth. So I, I have to tell you this. All right. So I'm writing. I have three first chapters of the Tin Black Line. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is so good. I feel good. And I, <laughs> I know. You know I spent like a year writing those first three chapters. <laughs> that's great. So I say, okay, so when can I publish? It's like, can I publish it by chapter and everything? Now I'm starting to look for the first time after a year, say, Oh, literary agent. Okay. So, okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to send a query letter. So I said, who's my, who's who am I reading right now? So I'm reading, okay. Let's say Dan Brown. Okay. An agent, Andy Lang at Greenberger. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly what I did, but I type it where, hi, my name is Simon. I'm uh, currently with the RCMP. I do this, I do that. I have a book about a counterterrorism husband and wife team. Are you interested in reading? Send the three chapters. You know, for me, police, military, you expect emails to come back to you quickly. <laughs> when I write something at someone, should come back, right? So two weeks later, still nothing. So I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> never mind. I'm, I'm going to keep doing my things. And then, poof, an email comes out. She actually replied and said, good wow. stuff. I love the first three chapters. Can I see the rest? What do you mean the rest? I'm not done. I'm just, and now I get a lecture about you cannot send anything about when it's not written. <laughs> I didn't know those rules. I had no idea whatsoever. So, of course, it took me five years to finish the next book because I was working full-time my job we had other businesses on the side so it was very it was very challenging but very fun and I I love the experience of finishing that book that is awesome and and so but you're doing you don't you do some investments are, are you doing some things along the way there where you're 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 trying a few different uh uh options I guess and I think some worked out very well yeah. <laughs> so that's awesome. Uh, and it's during that time you're also continuing to write and, uh, and finish this book. And then, and then, then what do you do? Who do you, how do you get an agent now? Well, I got an agent. I met him at Triller Fest. Uh, you know, yes. this is the place. I think we met at BoucherCon. But I think yeah, BoucherCon in, uh, in St. Petersburg. Exactly. So uh, it was kind of a speed dating. Uh, you have like a minute and you pitch and for me, I wasn't nervous. I, I, I thought I had a good product. Um, and I, I approached my agent. I sat down and then pressed the, like the little type of timer to say you have one minute. Yeah, yeah. And I present myself and he said, and he interrupted me and said, time out, Simon, you speak French. Yes, of course, I speak French. <laughs> I speak French all the time. This is what I speak at home. 
and said, well, I went to the Université de la Sorbonne in France to study. And I went, wow, so cool. So how do you like the Sorbonne? And we start talking. I was just coming back from a long weekend to Paris with my wife and kids. So I was talking to him and we think we chatted for five minutes before. And then I could feel the guys because, you know, at Triller Fest, the lines are super long to talk to mm-hmm. the agents. And he didn't seem to care. So we, why, why don't you talk to me about your book? And I talked to him about my book and he said, you know what? Do you have something I can read right now? So of course I had a USB key. And I said, there you go, Eric, go read the USB key. So and then I pitched to others and I, it, it went well, but the agent at Thriller Fest, they never say no. They always want to see your material because they, they don't like confrontation. They don't want to, they don't want to uh, uh, want to be authors or aspiring author. I'm not interested in your stuff. It might happen, but most of the time they take the USB, they take the table, please send me an email, send me the first three chapters. We're like, okay, we'll see. So I go up with a bunch of friends the same night at Catful Grill, and I still remember eating my steak and my, my, telephone, my cell phone rings. And it's Eric Myers. You say, hey, it's Eric. I've read your, your chapters. It's super interesting. I went to your website. I'm loving it. Can we meet tomorrow? I'd like to sign you as a client. That is awesome. Wow. Okay. That's, that's wonderful. That's really good news. So this is how I got my, uh, my agent in 2014, I think, and I, I'm still with him. That's inc- so people, I get asked that question a lot about agents. Um, and mine has told me very, she's like, I am not taking any more people. Do not <laughs> send people my way. Um, so I get that question a lot though. And, uh, and you know, there's that book with that book of agents, I guess, that has everybody's agency and kind of what they're looking for by category, I think. So I tell people that, but I say, Hey, go to Thriller Fest. Cause I've heard a similar story from a few different people where they've done that agent speed dating and it's worked out. Um, cause I can tell that if you, don't do that. It for sure won't work. You won't find one that way if you don't go to Thriller Fest and sit down and do that. If you don't do it, it 100% won't work that way. But if you go there, you never know. Um, and you make that connection like you did and someone reads it and loves it. And then you take that next step. So, you know, I, I, I tell people that all the time that it's a great place to do that. And I think, does BoucherCon do something similar? Do they have a speed agent thing or is it just Thriller Fest? I'm, I have to admit, I'm not sure because right yeah. now I go there just to see my friends. Exactly. You know, it's, you know, publishing is really a network type of, uh, type of job. And it's fun to meet with authors that are writing in the same genre. You become friendship. You can exchange blurbs and you talk about the industry. Um, so for aspiring writers, I think going to Thriller Fest is super important to make, to make the right connection because yep. everybody can write a book, but getting it published is, uh, is something entirely different, especially if you want to do it and make a living out of it. But there's nothing wrong with self-publishing. This is the way for you. But if you want to make a good living out of it, it's a little bit more challenging. Yeah, Thriller Fest and then BoucherCon, they're kind of different animals, but I recommend people go to both for that reason, that that uh, relationship and and uh, meeting people and having a drink with them in the bar or a coffee in the morning and getting to meet people that uh, before going to those things, you'd think, oh, Lee Child would never say a word to me. How would I ever meet him? Well, you know how? You go to BoucherCon, you go to Thriller Fest and walk in, you see him having a cigarette outside, you stop and say hello. like, And that's how it is because all those guys are just people. And uh, I mean- 
like Lee Child, amazing, David Morrell, of course, amazing, yeah. like all these guys that, that go to these and want to kind of pass along uh, some of that wisdom that they've gleaned over the years. They love being around people that love books. So it's, I like Atracon and Thriller Fest are so much fun. And we got to link up at St. Petersburg and have drinks together and dinners and, and all the rest of it. And we had a blast out there. And I really hope we can get back to doing that stuff in person soon. Oh, me too. Me too. But I just want to go back to the point you just said about meeting like uh, David Morrell and Nelson DeMille. For me, it was Nelson DeMille and David Morrell. These, these literary icon that I read when I was young, Brotherhood of the Rose and all the live from Nelson DeMille. I'm like, these guys are awesome. And then they, they talk to me. I, I, yeah. I was really, yeah, absolutely. And David even said, you know what, Simon, it's your first book. Would you like a blurb? And I, Whew, this is amazing. This is, big. this is amazing. And it's huge. I don't know how you felt about this, but personally, all the authors and the big names are welcoming to new guys like me was fantastic. I yeah. didn't expect that. I come from a world that is so competitive. And of course, there's competition between writers, but I feel it's a welcoming bunch in a way. Yep, I thought it was going to be the exact opposite as well, especially coming from from the military. And you had you had military, you had Royal Canadian Mounted Police, you had some finance going in, some other business experiences. Um, so for me, it was just military. But I thought, oh, I'm going into a new space. It's going to be super competitive. The people that are established are going to going to want to keep me at arm's length because I'll be this new guy coming in, kind of encroaching on their territory. That's what I thought yeah. anyway. Opposite was true exact opposite. My experience with every single author that I have had an encounter with has been so positive. They've all been so welcoming to me. Um, and I could, I, I'd never expected that. So that was a, uh, a welcome surprise, uh, going into the, into the publishing world. Yeah, absolutely. My, uh, what I get from this Mark Cameron, I'm sure, you know, Mark Cameron is a fantastic writer. He writes his own series, right? For Tom Clancy's as well. He's a good friend of mine, and we uh, we had because uh, he used to be a U.S. Marshal in Alaska. Is he's so great? Oh man, he's one I was of just in Alaska, and I wanted to see him. We were talking on uh, a direct message or text and or email or something, and uh, man, I, I bummed that I didn't get to see him up there. But what a great guy! Oh, he, he's fantastic, and we had lunch together when it was about Tricon in New Orleans a few years back. And I was just getting my first Thomas and Mercer book published at the time. It was my really my my kind of coming out, my, my breaking out book. Yeah. And uh, he said, Simon, don't worry about the competition because there's, there's like 365 days in a year. And even if they buy my books, they can still all buy yours and they're going to buy somebody else. There's enough that if we do good job as thriller writers, if we, you know, respect the time that the readers give us and trust in us to give them good story, they'll keep buying these type of book. And what he said was uh, a rising sea lift all boats. And yep. I never forgot that because I think it was the ultimate truth. If we give our, our clients good product, well, they're gonna keep buying our product and uh, there's gonna be space for a lot of people because a good read, like a book like yours that is a, it's a fast, a lightning pace on it, you read it in one sitting or two, maybe, you know, you're going to read it in a weekend max. Um, same thing for mine. So I'm going to buy Jack Carr. I'm going to buy Simon Gervais. I'm going to buy all of Mark Cameron's too. You know, there's, there's a lot of space in this. Yep. Area. No, exactly. And, and we all help each other in that when, uh, when someone reads this, 
they're like, oh, Last Protector, that was so awesome. When's this next book come out? Uh, oh, I have to wait a year or eight months, depending on when they find it, what, whatever. But uh, then they're like, well, who else can I read? Who else is in this genre? So it introduces so many people to the genre, then they want more. And they go, oh, but, uh, okay, a Jack Carr book or whatever it, it might be, a Mark Hammer book, Mark Graney book. Um, and so just the, if you have a, a good product out there, it helps other authors in the genre as well, because people just want more of it. It's kind of like going to the movies, let's say in the eighties, I didn't have to choose between Sylvester Stallone movie and an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, uh, in one year. Like, okay, I'm only going to have one of these. Which one am I going to pick? Okay. I guess it's only the Schwarzenegger movie or it's only the Stallone movie. Well, you know what? Stallone does a great job. What do you want? You want more action. You want more, uh, more movies like that. Okay. Schwarzenegger has one coming out. I'm going to see that too. And you just keep, you know, it helps everyone when uh, when the movies are so good, when the books are so good, and it elevates everyone's performance essentially because you want to do it better the next time. We all want to improve. We all want to move the ball forward for the genre as a whole and for us as, as writers individually. Um, so it, it's it's such a great community. I just absolutely love it. And uh, uh, everyone, like you said, has been so welcoming. I mean, all those yeah. huge names, so welcoming. To, to well, now you're a huge name too. I mean, to, oh, I, I didn't have the chance. I just wanted to congratulate you for your success. I mean, the last two years have been absolutely fantastic for you. I'm following, you know, your, your Twitter and Instagram, and I'm seeing what you've done, what you've accomplished when you came out of the military, the right, the good decision that you've made. I'm so happy for you. And I'm so happy when there's one of your new book coming out. They're oh awesome. man, dude! Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah, I hope we can get together. Boucher Connor, we, we we keep talking about going to Bahamas or we coming up to Canada. We haven't done it yet. Then COVID hit, of course, and all that. So kind of threw the world into turmoil. But uh, we're gonna we're gonna make those uh, the, the make those trips happen uh, yeah. as we move past this portion of I guess history uh, into the next phase here. But uh, yeah, I mean, and you're splitting your time now, really, between Canada, Bahamas. Um, I want to ask you how. Have you managed to juggle all this, juggle family, and get these books out? Because I read this a long time ago, and uh, and it's coming out here November 1st, I think, is the date for, for this next one. Um, but you finished it a long time ago. Like, you're ahead of the game. Like, you're not behind. You're not, I don't think you're on deadline. I think you're ahead of the game, <laughs> if I, I think anyway. And I see these pictures of you writing that you post on, uh, on social media. It always looks so beautiful. And, uh, I'm like, dang it. How is he getting this stuff done so quickly? Uh, what's that, what's that secret? And of course there's no secret. It's sitting down and doing the work, but, uh, but what's, how, how are you getting ahead of the game and how are you managing your schedule and writing? And, uh, one I'm asking for, uh, for me, but also for other, other writers out there that are, uh, stepping into this, this field and sitting down to maybe write their first novel. Yeah, I'm actually I'm actually always on a deadline. I feel I'm I'm always on a deadline, and I think my wife will tell you the last thirty days before I get a deadline, I don't do anything else but write. Yeah, I can write I can write fifty thousand words in in the last thirty days when I'm really into mm. it. Uh, for me, it's really to get the basic of the stories. Uh, I don't know if you're an organic writer or if you you outline your books. I outline. You do outline. Mm -hmm. I, I started outlining two books ago. Before that, yeah. I was purely organic. Wow. Um, they call it a pantser, I learned. I was a, is a Right by the seat of your pants uh, instead of outlining. But uh, no, I've always started with like a kind of a, a one-page executive summary, kind of like you'd read on the back of a book with the idea and then taken that and moved that over into an outline and then really thought it through and then sat down to turn that outline into the story. So the reason why I started outlining was um, 
it was when I, I was approached by the Ludlum Estate. Before they hire you, they want to they wanna see what type of story, right? They give you a one line, say, we'd like to do a story about that. What do you mm-hmm. think? So I had to wrote, I wrote a four to 5,000 word synopsis, which is something I had never done before. I don't know how to write a synopsis. You know, it has to be in the present tense. There's so many rules that I don't think I followed. My, what I wanted to do is write a good story. Yeah. You know what I'm capable of. I wanted them to be proud of what I could do for the Robert Ludlum's name, right? So I decided to do that. So that was my first outline. And I was like, oh my God, that was not that difficult. I think I'm going to do that for The Last Sentinel, which is a follow-up of that, that book. I'm going to write an outline. That's what I did. And I, I, then I can, wrote, I can write a, a book very quickly after that because I'm yep. going to have to be quick. I'm going to have two books to write a year from now on. That's a lot. Like, I don't know how you're doing that. It's, it's so difficult to, uh, to write one book a year, I yeah. think, especially if you have a family and, and you want to keep that family and you're juggling kids at the ages that we have kids at and all that. It's, uh, it's crazy. So to do two a year, that's, uh, I mean, Don Bentley's doing, I think oh, three this year because, because of the things that he has going on. Yeah, and I was talking to him a, the other day. I'm like, I was texting him. I'm like, him what? Brainy are crazy. Him and they are, Yeah. Like, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I think the trick, Jack, is to, is to surround yourself with people you can trust that can do jobs for you. It's a little bit like my wife does at her clinic. She has a manager, she has receptionist, she has assistant that does things for her that she can concentrate on her work. And that, that's what I have as well. That's what I have with, with Thomas and Mercer as well. I have like the publicists, the marketing, the editors. Mm. I have a whole team of people that the only thing they tell me is, I mean, don't worry about anything. Write the best book you can. Give me the best product you can, and we'll take care of the rest. That's awesome. Um, and in, in our private life, this is this is what we have also. We have people that works for work for us that in our day-to-day is is not as it's not as heavy as it as it might look because we have good people that we've worked with for years, that we trust them, they trust us, take care of them. And it makes life a lot easier. It allows us to, to spend quality time, quality time as a family at the cottage, at the ski during the weekend, or in the Bahamas, or boating. Um, so, and I'm sure, like, honestly, I'm looking at your schedule. I know what your schedule is. It's, it's, you're, you're crazy busy. So it's you really need to get people to, to help you out, manage through everything that's coming your way, your way I, I, I think. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely, that's the stage we're in now is, uh, is trying to find those those people that can help and take some of that off my plate so that I can just focus on the writing. So all the other things that I'm that I'm doing, and if I can, if it doesn't have to be me, maybe it can be somebody else. Like on the merchandise side of the house, we finally got it out of our kitchen, bedroom, living room. Uh, last Christmas, uh, my wife was like, "Okay, this is crazy." Uh, it was the first full year of merchandise boxes everywhere. I mean, our kids almost didn't have a Christmas because we're just packaging all these things up and getting them out the door. And my wife's printing labels and doing all this. It was absolute insanity. Um, and then after that, we're like, okay, we need to get someone to, uh, to handle that side of the house. So we have a, uh, at least we have a fulfillment center doing a lot of that now. Um, but then when it came time for the book to come out and I sent out the hardcover in this red case, you know, all that, like that was, I went down to pick it up cause they couldn't deliver it on time. Everything was last minute coming in all those different pieces. And, uh, I sent my family away. I sent them to Hawaii cause I'm like, I am going to have this book launch week. I'm going to have the pre week where I'm packaging all these things and trying to get them out and it's going to drive us all insane. So enjoy Hawaii. I will be here. And then, uh, brought some, some, uh, some people in to, uh, to help 
package those things up and uh, and print the labels and do all that team. So I had a, a team of babysitters for our kids kind of lined up in there, but the whole house was full of all that stuff. So that was a long way of saying, yes, getting the right people in the right place. They can take those things off my plate is definitely the next step. Um, not quite there yet, but getting better in 2022, I think we'll make some, some more moves because uh, just to free up the time and bandwidth in my head. So I just sit down and I'm just writing. So that's, the, yeah. that's, that's what I'm looking at moving forward. And it's not a bad way to do it, Jack, to realize what you need. Because if you hire too much people at the beginning, it's, it's not better. You don't know what to mm. tell them to do. So at yeah. least you know the amount of work that needs to be done. And I think you're busy with that because you're always sold out of pretty much everything. I mean, you have something <laughs> and people just, just buy it. So it's crazy. And congratulations for that. I mean, oh, merchandising was a, was a great idea. And I've never seen somebody send an art cover in an art case like this. I'm, oh, I mean, oh boy, what a marketing genius you are. Honestly, wow. it's like, there's a reason why you're at the top of the New York Times bestseller, my friend. Your artwork and your genius and marketing, it's all working so well, so Thank well. And, and I'm learning a lot from you at the same time, because this is something I think we need to do. We need to look up to people that do better than us, that have, 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 have found a way to, to be successful in a certain business and try to, to do the same, not copy it, but just learn from what they do. Okay, you did that and it, it worked. And you try to emulate it in your own work to become more efficient, to be, you know, you need to be proactive at getting better. You can't just sit back and say, I'm going to stop growing. I have it good now because there's always going to be people behind you trying to, to surpass you and you, you need to keep going. Oh yeah. No, it's all about that adaptability. And I just looked at it as, Hey, if I was just dropped down onto a battlefield somewhere, uh, what would I do? Okay. I'd survey the situation, take a breath. And then there are things that I would do. I would adapt what the enemy's doing, knowing that they're adapting to me at the same time. I want to capitalize on momentum, uh, things like that. And I just took that over into publishing, stepping out of the military. I just looked at it as, okay, this is a new battlefield, a lot less dangerous. Uh, I can take a breath. I can look at it. And then I looked at like Steve Jobs and I, I, I read that he had sent, they, they, I think they had almost all the boxes for one of the MacBook Air or whatever it was. And the color of white on the box was a tiny bit off. And he said, no, we're delaying sending these out uh, and we're redoing the box in the color that I want. And uh, so I was like, ah, you know, so I, I thought about that. And that's kind of where the box part came from. And I thought, hey, how does Kill Cliff or Red Bull launch a drink? Um, and so I was just looking at other industries and then also looking at a completely different environment than say David Morrell was dealing with in 1975 or 1985. Um, there are platforms that are available to us today that we can build, that we don't have to rely on a publisher to build. And, uh, and how would, how do we then adapt to that changing environment with podcasts and social media and all the rest of it? Um, that those guys that didn't really have that option back in 75, 85, 95. Um, so really it was just about adaptability, but, uh, I sincerely appreciate the, the kind words and, and I'm always looking at you too, about how to be more effective and more efficient. Cause I know the background that you're bringing to all of this. And it's just, it's fantastic. Cause you, so now this is, is this the fourth series now that, uh, that you're starting or is this the third? This is the third, the Lublum will be the fourth. Yeah. Okay. So well, Lublum's the fourth. Okay. Yeah, exactly. The last protector, uh, it's, uh, I got signed up for two, two, two deals with the, uh, two books for them. The last protector is coming out November 1st, the last Sentinel, August 23rd. And so far the last protector is it's at the top of the Kindle chart. I mean, I've been awesome. at the top 15 overall Kindle bestselling list for over two weeks now. So that I'm is really, awesome. really happy. It's about 2,000 reviews already. And the book is not even out. It's going to be out. That's amazing. 
That's incredible. And and this one, you're taking a lot of that background in uh, personal protection and all that, and you're, you're incorporating that into into this this book. Um, yeah. And that I know, absolutely incredible. I love how you're how you're doing that. Um, and when we're talking about the Ludlam again, uh, going back to that, how did, does Tom Colgan call you, or how does that work out? How do you get a call from the the Ludlam estate? Do you get a random email, or is it to your agent first, or Tom Colgan reaches out because you already know each other? Like, how does that all all work? I've known Tom for years, and we've always wanted to work together, but it never legendary, been... by the way. Tom, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Tom I mean, Clancy's editor. Yeah, yeah, he's the, he's like one of the biggest names in the publishing industry, at least in my world. And uh, but I never really submitted anything to him because I always had a contract, and my relation with Thomas and Mercer is awesome. I mean, my Pearson series become a big success because of them. So I'm very, very loyal to. Please. Thank you. I'm very, very loyal to the people who help me out, to break me out. Um, but at the same time, I know Thomas and Mercer can only publish one book a year for me. And I said, you know what? I think that at least for a few years, I'm going to be able to write two books a year. You know, I'd like to try. Brad <laughs> Taylor is doing it. Don Bentley is doing it. Mark Brady is writing like probably a million words a year. <laughs> so yeah, you know each one of his books is like four books for anybody else. If you were to like physically look at them, you could cut that up into like at least three. I know it's crazy. And so I decided I, I, I typed the end of the last Sentinel and I, I sent it to, uh, to my editor and said, what do I want to do now? Like, hmm, I'm going to send it just like that. That was a quarter of my desk. I'm going to send an email to Tom Cole and say, hey, Tom, it's Simon. Um, I'm pretty much done with, uh, with my latest book. I, I can write a book in six months. You know, I, I think I, I could do it. I know that the Ludlum estate is full. You have Joshua Hood, you have Brian Freeman that are doing an incredible job. The Clancy estate is well taken care of as well. But if something else pops up, Keep me on your radar. That's that's all he says. I say, have a good night. Ciao. Send an email. No way. Five minutes later, he replies and said, Simon, it's it's freaking me out. I cannot believe you just sent me an email. Sometime yesterday night, something popped up on my desk. I have a project, and I swear to God, Simon, I was thinking of you for it. That is oh insane. God. I know. That's say, awesome. And at the end, at the end of the email, even say, Simon, I'm not kidding. This is really weird. <laughs> say that. So I said, okay, perfect. But then he said, then we talked, said, I cannot talk to you about the project yet. We still need to negotiate a lot of things, but you know what? Give me a few months and, and I'll let you know what it is. So after that, I learned it was the Robert Ludlum estate, which for me is like, it's, a, oh, I told you that before. It's a dream come true. Honestly, I'm, I'm excited. I have goosebumps just thinking about it. Uh, I'm super, super excited about this. And Tom told me it's going to be a big book. We're going to push it really hard. So I think it's going awesome. to be good for the estates It's going to be good for the publishers. It's going to be good for me. I'm really happy. I'm so fortunate. I'm, I'm blessed to have, to have that lined up for me. Oh, that is so cool. Yeah. Tom, legendary, awesome guy, Tom Colgan. Um, and then is there a date? I know I'm not going to ask you about titles or anything like that, but um, what, uh, what is there a, a time frame that that would be coming out? You told me uh, it's going to come out at uh, the end of 2022. End of 22. Okay. Yeah. Nice. End of 22. So it's, it's really, you know, I'm, I'm working on it. Right you better now. get to work. Yeah. Due to Tom on April 1st, it's due to Tom on April 1st, and then all the marketing and the, the yeah. editing is going to be happening. Um, and if they're happy, it's going to be for multiple book series, for sure. So of course, the first one, they sign you for one yeah. book. 
just want to make sure that you can actually uh, do a good job for them. But I, I know, I know they'll be pleased. They, they love the synopsis I, I send them and they were a big fan of the Pearson series. So yeah. I'm, I'm really confident that they will enjoy it. Yeah, but I have all of them, of course, but we're in the middle of a move now ourselves. So we're like, we added that to the mix. So finally found a place here in Park City. So we're in the middle. So I have the boxes everywhere. So I was, uh, so these are the, the ones that I could find. But uh, yeah, Pierce Hunt series, awesome. Thank you so much for signing these. I got the, I have the uh, uh, the actual version and I have the um, uh, the, the galley copies. So um, yeah, thank you so much for sending those along. And uh, and Clayton White. So let's talk about this for a second here because this is the latest. And oftentimes someone finds an author after they already have uh, built a foundation of other work. So when people find this, they're going to go back and they're going to find Pierce Hunt. They're going to find Mike Walton. They're going to find all the other things that you have, you have done. But um, Last Protector, where did the idea for this one come from? I know that some of it came from your background, but where did the plot for this one come from? Yeah, for, it's, a, it's an interesting because it told me uh, when I was signing, uh, when I got that deal for that book, they kind of bought it on the one paragraph synopsis I sent them. Uh, and uh, the idea came, it was at the time that we were beating ISIS. They were, they were retreating, uh, but there were still little portion in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria that were there. And they were coming back to Europe. They were the fighters that tried to kill our guys were coming back to Canada, the United States, to Europe. And I was saying, that's a major political problem. What are we doing with these ISIS-trained fighters? that were ready to die to kill us? Or should we welcome back to our society? Should we keep them out? If we keep them out, where would they put them? Who's responsible for their safekeeping? And that's, that's, the, that's the idea I got is that, what if a bunch of American and British general decided to put them in the boat and sink the boat and nobody knows about it? And what if the daughter of one of this general is, uh, is an architect and an engineer and makes a program that's to work with a satellite that's able to see through water and they would be able to see where that, that boat has sunk with like the hundreds of people that, that they killed without due process. Um, so this is the basic of where I got an idea. I wanted to have somebody that was not a ranger or a Navy SEAL. I wanted somebody else that was a military background, but that nobody really talked about. That's why mm -hmm. I found that the United States Air Force pararescuemen or combat rescue officer are some of the best trained military personnel in the United States military. They have one of the longest pipeline as well. Their training is unbelievable. And they yeah. even have one of their squad, squadron that's considered a tier one unit, the 24th squadron. Yeah. These guys yeah, are SDS. awesome. Yeah. So I wanted to, to learn about them. I wanted to write about somebody like this that started in the military, but decided to leave and become a United States Secret Service agent to protect the vice president and the president and their family. So the story of Clayton White, who's my protagonist in that book, is that he's protecting the daughter of the vice president elect, General Hammond, who used to be one of those guys in charge of conquest, that program for the detainees. And, um, but Clayton is protecting Veronica Hammond, the daughter, but he's in love with her as well. But nobody knows but them. So there's tension there because he knows he's going to lose his Secret Service job if it becomes public. And everything blows out when she's attacked at a banquet. 
and a lot of Secret Service guys lose their lives and he doesn't understand what happened. He tried to rehack the best way he can, but he cannot do everything he wanted to. And now he goes and try to investigate on why did this happen? And he realized that the danger is much closer to home than he thought it was. So this is his story really that, that we're, we're reading in The Last Detector. Yeah, I mean, you sent this to me last April, May timeframe, and uh, thank you so much for sending it to me. Loved yeah. reading it. Uh, gave you the blurb last uh, last May, I think early May last year. It was so awesome to to read to get the sneak peek. But at the time, I'm like, how does he finish these so early? Dang it! Um, <laughs> so yeah, amazing, amazing. So um, yeah, man, I'm so fired up for all you have going on. It's so cool. You're amassing this incredible body of work. Getting able to do the Ludlam Estate project is just incredible news. I'm so fired up for you. It could not be in better hands. And I can't wait to, uh, to read an early copy of that one as uh, as you get ready to, to publish it. You bet. And right back at you, Jack. I, I'm looking at you. I'm, I'm so happy of everything that's going on in your direction right now. Um, I mean, you made all the right decisions, all the right calls. And at least from the outside, that's what <laughs> I, I know there's challenges behind this, but uh, you've done really well. And your books are amazing. And I can't wait to watch to watch it on the screen. That's going to be awesome. I'm sure it's going to, I'm sure we'll talk again outside the hair at some oh, point, yeah. but I'd love to hear your experience uh, dealing with this. It must have been surreal. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I mean, last night I was working on the uh, the main title credits and seeing how how that's coming developing. Oh man, like the music and figuring out all those main title credits. That that part is just firing me up. But yeah, one more episode to uh, to edit, uh, and then it goes into that part of post production where they do the treatments and the visual effects and all that stuff. And then I'll see them all all again after that. So it's been an amazing experience. But uh, Man, I can't wait till we can link up again and have dinner, have drinks, hang out, maybe get down to the Bahamas um, and, awesome, uh, and take a breath and just catch up in person. I'm always willing. You're the busy guy right now. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to make it happen. Dang COVID. But uh, we'll make it happen. And uh, yeah, man, dude, thank you so much for coming on. I sincerely appreciate you taking the time because I know you have a ton on your plate with multiple books to write in a year. And uh, I just cannot be more uh, more fired up for everything you have going on. Thanks for having me. It's a real honor, Jack. Honestly, a real honor to be If you've been following for a little while, you've known that I am big into finishing my fifth novel right now. So everything else has kind of taken a backseat to that, including fitness. But it's time to get back after it. I'll be done with the fifth book soon. And who have I decided to look to as I jump back in to get back in shape for life? Oh, yeah. Mountain Tough. I am fired up. Uh, they've made it very easy, actually. Check this out. Mountain Tough. I am so fired up for this. You can add it to your home screen. So it's like an app. Bam. You click on that. There are all these different workouts that uh, that you can do on the, these training programs, actually, I should say. And it's just awesome. Uh, daily scores on here. You can keep be held accountable because there are 10,000 other Mountain Tough athletes on here that uh, can hold you accountable if you need that. And I'm starting with this thing. So it's 30-30-2.0. And if I click on that right here, it's 30 workouts, five days a week for six weeks, 30 minutes each, no gear, meaning you don't, no, I should say no gear. I should say go, no, no going to the gym. So there's another one that I'm going to jump into after that, which is the post-season strength program. And by that point, I should be in the new house in a rental right now and have some more gear available, more of a home gym. And I'll be hopping into that post strength, postseason strength program after that. But to start off, 
It's 3030 2.0. So check that out. Go right here. And once again, 30 minutes or 30 minutes each, five days a week for six weeks, 30 workouts. Awesome. Mountain tough. So, you know, when you go to the gym and you don't know what workout to do, I hate that. With Mountain Tough, they have created the most functional fitness programs ever devised, all delivered to your phone. Created by veteran Navy SEALs and Army Rangers, they make it convenient to go to the gym, do the prescribed workout, and get in the best shape physically and mentally of your life. Mentally, that's the key right there. Uh, people ask me about SEAL training all the time, about BUDS, and I saw some people that were in the best physical shape that I'd ever seen quit the first couple hours of hell week because the mental component. So that is incorporated here into Mountain Tough Fitness. And at first look, you might think that this is just designed for backcountry hunters, just designed for first responders, special operators in the military, but there is something in this program for everybody, which is what I like because now maybe I'm not jumping in at that elite level right off the bat, having been writing for the last uh, few months here. Maybe I'm going to start somewhere else, but I think that 3032.0 is a good one for me right now. All these fitness programs are, are, are for when accomplishing the mission is all that matters in rugged terrain at high elevation for multiple days. Once again, that's really preparing you for life. And that focus is really on mental toughness. And I, once again, 10,000 mountain tough athletes out there, and you can connect with them through the, uh, through the website, put that on the home screen of your phone. So it's just like an app and uh, connect with them as you go through these workouts here, increase mental toughness, build muscle and improve endurance anytime, anywhere from any mobile device. Love it with everything I have going on and everybody has craziness going on in their lives. It's so nice that someone else has taken the time, energy, and effort to put together these programs. So all you do is click and do the workout. Give them, give yourself that 30 minutes a day, thousands of hours of testing on dedicated mountain hunters, first responders, and military personnel lifetime access for purchased programs. Awesome. And once again, programs for everyone. Those who hit the gym and heavy weights and those who like to work out at home with no gear at all. Something for everyone. Guidance for beginner, intermediate, and elite athletes. So don't be intimidated. Go check it out on the website. Get the, I'd say that 3032.0 is a good place to start and uh, start getting after it. The right nudge from the right person at the right time can change your destiny. And regardless of your age or circumstances, I am nudging you to start today. Nudging myself too. As I know, the Mountain Tough programs and the Mountain Tough community will enable you to become the best version of yourself. Mountain Tough is offering Danger Close listeners 20% off all their online training programs and apparel with the, close, the code Danger Close. D-A-N-G-E-R-C-L-O-S-E. Go to M-T-N Tough. Dot com and enter code danger close to receive 20% off all their online training programs and apparel. That is mtntough.com and enter code danger close. And follow me. I'll be posting and let you know how the program is going for me in the months ahead, but uh, better yet, don't follow me for that stuff. Go to mountain tough, mtntough dot com. Check out what they have going on. Follow them on the social channels. Hit their Instagram. It's awesome. It's inspiring. And then get after it and do the workouts. I'll be doing them for sure. All right. Take care out there. And remember that code, Danger Close, for 20% off.
Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. Today, I want to talk about merging vets and players, which is an organization that takes veterans of the military and takes athletes, professional athletes, and brings them together as they transition out because there are a lot of similarities between transitioning from military service and transitioning from being a professional athlete into that next chapter in life. It's a foundation that was founded by Jay Glazer of Fox NFL Sunday and my friend Nate Boyer, who is a former Army Special Forces veteran and also played in the NFL. So it's an incredible organization. Check them out, vetsandplayers.org. And they've teamed up with Trinidad three. So I'm wearing Trinidad three clothing right now, t-shirt, this, they make these jeans, these pants here, they, they knocked it out of the park, uh, t-shirt right here. So you can check them out. Trinidad three.com. Uh, very cool, amazing organization with, uh, emerging vets and players. So for sure, check them out. Awesome. Also want to talk about blades. So this is the Western chef right here. And this is from my friends at New West Knife Works. And you can visit them online at New West Knife Works. But look at that. Look how big that thing is. Dang, that is serious. And you can visit them in Jackson Hole and St. Helena, California, and right here in Park City, Utah. So very cool. This is going to get some use over the holidays for sure. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. You can find out more about Simon Gervais at simongervaisbooks.com. And you can link there to all his social channels and sign up for his newsletter, find out what's going on there and stay up to date with his exciting news that he talked about in the podcast about continuing the legacy of Robert Ludlum. So awesome. If you liked our conversation, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. That certainly helps. And I would genuinely appreciate it. You can follow me at officialjackcar.com and link to jackcarusa.com for the merch. Jackcarusa on the social channels as well. Thank you so much for everything. Sincerely appreciate the support. Until the next time, take care, stay safe, be strong, keep fighting. And a special thank you to Schnee's. I've been using Schnee's boots for over a decade now. As you can tell for these ones right here, just my favorites. These are the granites. I think every hunter should have a pair of these in their quiver. But these guys right here, these are the ones that I wear when I'm going into the backcountry and hope to come out heavier than when I went in. So uh, right here, granites, awesome boot. Absolutely love these. You can see these have been worn quite a bit. These are some of my other favorites right here. So these are the Hunter 2s. These are, I would wear these all day, every day if I if I could, but uh, um, amazing boot. Love everything they have going on over there at Schnee's. So be sure to check them out. I have some new boots now. I think I have uh, 10 pair right now. My wife has a pair uh, and then I just got a couple new pairs. And right here, these are the Beartooths. I've one of these for a while. So super excited about trying out the Beartooths. That'll happen this summer and fall. And then the Kestrels right here. So those are a couple new pairs that I have in the arsenal that I'm looking forward to checking out here soon. So if you haven't heard of Schnee's, check them out online, check out their story, check out their Instagram, the boots they make in an Italian boot factory. So those are handmade in Italy. The only place you can get them is through Schnee's directly to you. So you're getting more boot for your money. And uh, every part of these things, uh, you can just tell 
how much care and how much time, energy, and effort goes into these boots right here. And what's also great about Schnee's is that you can go visit them in Bozeman, or you can give them a call and tell them about uh, where you're going to hunt, what you're doing, and uh, they can make some recommendations for you right there on the phone. So Schnee's, thank you so much. And I'm going to read this part because you get 10% off. Uh, so I don't want to mess this part up. When you shop at Schnee's, and that is S-C-H-N-E-E-S dot com, make sure you use the promo code JACK21, J-A-C-K-2-1. When you do, you'll save 10% off your pair of Schnee's boots and logo wear. These handmade hunting boots usually sell out fast, so grab your pair today. Take care of your feet. Don't compromise. Upgrade to Schnee's. Again, that's Schnee's, S-C-H-N-E-E-S dot com and promo code Jack21. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What are box you... do you fit in? Which exactly, box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy or right, right. An How, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.